0: going through a series that I've called Why I'm Not, and I realize that's a bit of a negative name. Instead, I might should be saying Why I Am, but uh, the Why I Am is kind of built into it. And what I'd like to do this morning is try to finish Why I'm Not a Mormon or an LDS, Latter-day Saint, as they also will call themselves. Now, I've got to tell you, By way of introduction, yes, I didn't have a door because originally I wasn't going to do the Mormon stuff. So we just squeezed over and we've got the Mormons added. And uh, uh, this is then why I'm not a Mormon. I want to tell you, I have a lot of very dear friends who are Mormons. I have uh, clients who are Mormons. As we prayed over Lori, who's going to be headed off to Kenya for a number of months. I was thinking about how many Mormons go into a mission field and do a mission just as part of their uh, uh, entry into adulthood. It's very impressive. As I was thinking about uh, uh, Mel and Jackie Cockrell and him losing his wife and, and so many others who've lost their loved ones uh, uh, over the last year and the importance of family to us. I was thinking about my Mormon friends and how important family is to them. And there's so much I respect and there's so much I appreciate about them and about what they do. So much that's so admirable that I'd love to tell you that I could see myself being a Mormon, but I can't. And I can't because of, of, not, not, not because of some heart issue of Gee, I don't like those people. I do like these people. it's, It's not at all an issue of the heart. For me, it's simply an issue of what seems right. It's an issue of what makes sense. It's an issue of truth. And so ultimately, as I told you in part one of this lesson, which... If you're interested in parts of this and you don't remember it or you weren't here for it, go back through our amazing internet team. It's available on the internet. Also, the written lesson's available as well, and I have fleshed it out somewhat from what was done the first time. But part one, what I explained to everyone on why I'm not a Mormon is to some degree it's the importance of consistency. And this importance of consistency is there because I find too much inconsistency with the Mormon faith. I need two plus two to equal four. And I need it to equal four on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Now, it's very important as I talk about this that I not want anyone, especially if you're a Mormon, I don't want you to feel like I'm insulting you. I don't want you to feel like I'm insulting your, your brain and your ability to think, uh, your your ability to do logic. I'm not at all. What I'm trying to say is, from my perspective, there are major inconsistencies within Mormonism itself, that preclude me from embracing it as a faith. So I'd like to talk to you about that. And I think a little bit of background is necessary, and some of this background is uh, material that I supplied about a month ago in a lesson here. So I'm going to go through it a little bit quicker, but it's good refresher for everyone, and if you weren't here, it'll be kind of important. A core to understanding why I say that Mormonism is inconsistent in my mind is the Mormon view of the Bible. The Mormons will say that as originally written, the Bible is correct. It is God's revelation. It is the testimony of, of faith then the Mormons will also say that the Mormon scriptures are also correct. And if you can read the fine print under the Book of Mormon, it says another testament of Jesus Christ. Because the Mormon premise is, is that, yes, as originally written, the Bible's correct, but the Book of Mormon is additional or supplemental material. So the Book of Mormon and Mormonism should never contradict the Bible. It should, if we understand the Mormon doctrine correctly, supplement. Maybe there are some things in the the, the Bible that, that needed supplementation. I have problems with that. But if that's the Mormon view, that's fine. But supplementing is different ...than changing. And Mormon doctrine should not change... ...core Christian doctrine. It certainly shouldn't contradict it. And I think it does. Now, importantly... ...we put in the last class... ...Mormonism's roots into their historical context... ...and I just want to remind you of some of this... ...as we look at the doctrinal differences today... Today, the goal is to focus on doctrinal differences, whereas the goal in the first class was to focus on how Mormonism came about. So the doctrinal differences are best understood within the framework of the historicity, the historical material. The 1820s are really the birth time for the Mormon faith in the sense that this is the time when Joseph Smith started receiving the divine revelation supposedly and the divine help supposedly at translating and and understanding uh, not only the the buried scriptures that were claimed to have been buried uh but also uh the additional revelation that he received as a prophet in the 1820s the world was different than it is today there were 23 states not 50 the president was james monroe James Monroe was the fifth president of the United States of America. We'd only had four presidents before him. We were still very embryonic. George Washington's only been dead for like 20 years. Thomas Jefferson, not for long. This is back in the very formative stages. There's still a large Native American presence... And the United States really starts getting into the hinterlands once you reach those that crazy west like Ohio. And so the world was very different. I wanted to give you photographs of 1820 America, but they didn't make pictures then. The oldest pictures I could find were in the 1840s, and there, they're very, very old. This is Philadelphia in the 1840s. Here's downtown Manhattan in the 1840s. So the world was very different then. America was very different then. Now I want to put this into a religious context for a moment. Europe had the church from the inception on. We now call it the Roman Catholic Church to distinguish it from the Eastern Orthodox Church. But that church had been the church of Europe all the way up until Martin Luther. And when Martin Luther began a protest movement within the Catholic Church, those followers of Martin Luther became known as Protestants. Protestants the way we pronounce it, unless you're from Lubbock, in which event, Protestants is still totally acceptable. And some of those Protestants just went by Lutherans because they followed the teaching of Martin Luther. Others followed the teaching of John Calvin and some others who were in the line after Martin Luther. But these religions took hold And and captured places. England, meanwhile, left its Catholic roots because poor Henry VIII couldn't get a divorce from the Pope. And he desperately needed one, so he decided he had no use for the Pope. And thus began the Anglican Church. Anglican, off of the Angles, which is the same word England comes from. The Anglo-Saxons. The Angles part of that. So the Anglican Church is the official church of England, except for this small little time where they turned Catholic again, but that was an entirely uh, uh, blip in the history of England, a bloody little blip, because they were fighting back and forth over it. But all of these nations had their religions, if you will, that were official religions of the countries, not so the U.S. of A. The U.S. of A. is that novel Christian land where the forefathers said, we're not going to have a national church. It's the First Amendment. We're not going to have a national church. So in America, church becomes almost a free-for-all. And this is, this is the early stages of it. The 1800s is when that First Amendment is really being exercised. And so you find people starting churches right and left. And in the 1820s it's a big deal. This is all part of what historians have called the second great awakening movement. And an inherent part of this movement which was... Uh, I don't have time for that part. Here are some of the issues of the movement. I'm sorry. If you want that part, it was in the earlier lecture. By the way, according to the clock back there, it is 6.57. Now, I'm going to take that as 6.57 in the morning, which gives me somewhere around seven more hours to finish this lesson. Just warning you. Religion, don't laugh. I could go that long. Might need some water. Religion in America was in the throes of the Second Great Awakening. Now one of the issues in the Second Great Awakening was this idea of let's restore the New Testament church. Let's quit reforming, tweaking it here and tweaking it there, trying to make it better what it should be. And let's just start all over again with the real one. This was especially appropriate It may not be the right word. This fit well with the U.S. of A psyche. Because so many people viewed the United States of America as a chance to do over. We can do over society. We can do over government. Everywhere else in Western civilization they had kings and queens. We didn't have one. We're going to do over. We don't have to just tweak it. We don't have to just reduce their powers some with the Magna Carta. We're just getting rid... We're starting all new, brand clean, spanking fresh. We're going to write this baby a, a, a brand new part of history. And that's the genesis and birth of our country. That's in our DNA. And those same people who had that in their DNA... When you look at, when they looked into the world of religion, they were very much of the same mentality. Why do we take something that everyone else has had that's been corrupted and twe- tweaking it here and there? Let's start all over. Let's go back to the Bible. Let's get that New Testament church without your popes and your cardinals and your bishops and your episcopals and your, your presbyteries and all the rest. Let's get rid of the creeds and the doctrines and all of the accoutrements that have gathered and encrusted themselves on the divine church of the New Testament. Let's knock it all off and just start back with that Bible. Oh, (laughs) Miss Carolyn, see, she understands that. So that was the mentality. And into that world comes Joseph Smith. Who is a teenage boy, says he began getting visions, which I might add, tons of other people thought they were getting to, to direct them to start other churches. Lots of churches got their start during this time period. Some names you'll recognize right now, the Seventh Day Adventist. The First Christian Church. The Churches of Christ. Lots of churches got their start under this appeal. Now, the Book of Mormon is translated by Joseph Smith. And as part of the translation, we have in the beginning, in the introduction. It's not part of the translation. It's the introduction the Mormon church has written for the translation. A record of God's dealing with ancient inhabitants of the Americas. Containing the fullness of the everlasting gospel. And Joseph Smith started out with a book that he published and sold. This was originally an economic venture for him. He published the book. He said, this is a book that's a translation of these tablets of the the Native American origins. This tells you where the Indians came from. And he used what was already a popularized view that can be found in published newspapers and other places before Joseph Smith, that maybe the Native Americans were some of those lost tribes of the Jews or some other Jewish tribes that had made it over to here. And that's what he writes up in the Book of Mormon. And then as he sells those, and his co-publisher sells those, they start getting a following. And within that following, Joseph Smith says he's getting more revelations. And so he collects a group of them in a book called The Doctrine and the Covenants, which are a collection of divine revelations we read and inspired declarations given for the establishment and regulation of the kingdom of God on the earth in the last days. Here's what he said. He said, if you're following me, I've now got new revelations that God has given me and these are instructions for how you can be a part of our religious group. And this is God's real message for our final days. That Bible, that was the old stuff. And, and what happened was a great apostasy from that. And we've we've peeled back all of the apostasy and, and we'll follow the Bible. But now, the Bible itself may not have all of the answers for our day. So God is giving me fresh revelation that I'm writing down so that the church will have instructions for our day. And we have that in the Doctrine and the Covenants. And then there's a third set of scriptures. The Pearl of Great Price, it's called. And these are more sayings and teachings of Joseph Smith, including what he called a translation, but it's not a translation, of different parts of the Bible. It also contains the Mormon articles of faith that I believe were originally published in a newspaper, but then were incorporated in here as this nascent Uh, 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 religious group grows and takes effect. So that's what we've got. That's some of the background. That's some of the history. I went into a lot more depth before. But what I'd like to do is say, okay, now, consistency, Mormon doctrine should not contradict biblical doctrine. If that's what this is, if this is the Book of Mormon in today's world and, and the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrine and Covenants, if it's just God peeling off all of the old crusty stuff to get back to restoring and and finding that core gospel message as it was originally written, then we should find no contradiction between Mormonism and its doctrines and those of the Bible. Now, I'm not going to say, hey, Mormonism contradicts the... Council of Nicaea in 385 or whenever it was AD. Actually, it was before that. I, 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 I'm not going there. Yes, it does. But, but that's not my point because the Mormon response to that is, yeah, the Council of Nicaea got it wrong. Instead, what I'm going to do is say, I'm going to compare it to the Bible itself not to any doctrines and creeds of man that have come up after the Bible. Just compare it to the Bible. I mean, if the Mormon view is we believe the Bible to be the Word of God, as far as it's translated correctly, we also believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. Now, as far as it's translated correctly, I will talk about some of that, and I have before, but I want to make sure anybody who's a visitor or anybody who doesn't know me knows I do not claim to be a Greek and Hebrew scholar. The Bible was written, New Testament and Greek, Old Testament and Hebrew and Aramaic. But while I'm not an Old Testament Hebrew and Greek scholar, and New Testament Greek scholar, I know enough Hebrew and Greek to know I'm not a scholar. By that I mean that's my degree. My undergraduate degree is in Hebrew and Greek, biblical languages. I studied Hebrew, years and years of it. Greek, years and years of it. Heck, I took a couple of years of Latin. I studied Syriac, and I studied Aramaic. I mean, I'm not, that just means I've wasted a lot of time. I'm not, somebody in this class sent me a billboard. And the billboard was in one of those white, billboards that had letters on it and then the tagline below and it says oh i wish i could go back and study all of that hebrew and greek i forgot and then down below it said said no one ever (laughs) and it was sent to me with a tagline except mark lanier (laughs) i mean i've taken years and years and years and then for the last 35 years i've continued to use those tools So I have no qualms reading out of the Greek New Testament. I have no qualms reading out of the Hebrew Old Testament. So when I talk about these things, I'm not a linguistic scholar. But I got enough to talk about these things. So what do we have? Let's look at these areas of inconsistency. The first one I want to talk to you about is who is God the Father? There is a huge inconsistency here. The Mormon Doctrine in the Doctrine in the Covenants, section 130, verse 22, says the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones. The Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit. Now this is something Joseph Smith claims was revealed to him when he was in his 20s. And so it's written down, and it's part of the Doctrine and the Covenants as a distinct revelation that was given to this mid-20s-year-old fella in about 1930. Now, 1830, thank you. Now, I've got, I got problems with that. That's just not what the Bible says. And I'm not talking about an interpretation and a creed and a doctrine from a later religious apostasy. I'm talking about the Bible itself. So let's put the the doctrine and covenants up. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also. And let's compare it to a very simple verse out of the Gospel of John. Jesus has gone to a well and there's a Samaritan woman drawing water out of the well. And Jesus is confronting that Samaritan woman on her status as a sinner. And the Samaritan woman is trying to change the subject as rapidly and repeatedly as she can. And one of the change of subjects she does is she tries to draw a distinction and get Jesus instead to talk about a big debating point of the day. Uh, she says, um, Okay, we Samaritans believe we're supposed to worship on Mount Gerizim. You Jews believe it should be the mountain of Jerusalem. Uh, uh, Why why don't you talk about that? And Jesus' comment is one that sets totally aside the issue of where you're worshiping and talks about the heart of the worshiper. She tries to to use... uh, uh, election parlance, election debate parlance, she tries to pivot, and he pivots back. He says to her, the day is coming when it's not going to be a question of where you worship. And the reason why is because God is spirit. God's not locked up in a house on a mountain. God's not on the mountain of Jerusalem. Uh, He's not on the mountain uh, of Gerizim. God's spirit. So if you want to worship him, you need to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not a question of where you're located. It's a question of of how you're worshiping. Now, Jesus doesn't say God's flesh and bones. And the spirit is a personage of spirit. Jesus is talking very clearly and says God is spirit. And if you want to worship him, you need to worship him in spirit and truth. Now, that's not just that passage. There are lots of others. Luke 24, 39. Colossians 1, 15. Look at some of these. Look at uh, the Colossians passage for a moment. Or the Timothy passages. What did I put down? 1 Timothy 1, 17. Let's look at that. This is the Bible now. This is not some later Christian apostasy. This is the Bible. Paul writes this prayer in First Timothy or, or proclamation of praise in First 1 Timothy 1.17. to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible. He's not flesh and bone. He's invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You can look at uh, another passage uh, um, later on in the letter. Paul writes about Jesus. Will this? Uh, he will display at the proper time the appearing of our Lord Jesus. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. Jim be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God is not a visible personage. He's not a supersized human being. He's not flesh and blood. God is a spirit. Now, the Mormon concept makes... ...doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not like, oh, they just plucked this out... ...and God is flesh and bones. It's actually part of a much larger scheme... ...or, I don't mean scheme in a nefarious sense... ...but but, uh, like a schematic... ...much of a a bigger picture. Before I get to it, I, I need to tell you... ...but the Mormons may say, wait a minute... ...wait a minute... ...the Bible also has passages like Isaiah 49, 16... Where God says, I have engraved you, Israel, on the palms of my hands. So the Mormons say, God has hands. But my dear friend Janet Seaford emailed me the last couple of days. And if you're not on her email list, don't get on it. I mean, did I say that out loud? Because you'll get these emails from left field that say things like, do you know what the word trope means? And you're not allowed to look it up. That's the entire email. Well, I'm sitting there typing the lesson. So I decide I'll put trope into the lesson. Because this is a trope. A trope is a A linguistic trope at least, which is the only way I'm familiar with the word, it may have more meaning than that, but a linguistic trope is an expression or a manner of putting something so that it makes some sense to you. And the idea of talking about God having the palms of His hands engraved with His people, the hands of God, if you look at your Hebrew Old Testament, the hands of God are never referring to flesh and bone hands. They're referring to the power of God, the working of God, what He's able to accomplish, what He's doing. We work with our hands. God's hands are always a reference to His work, not to flesh and blood. God didn't get the name of Israel tattooed on his hands. But it's ever present before God. It's the palms of his hands. It's what he sees when he's working. When God puts his hands to work. When God is at work. He's working for the good of his people. He cares about his people. That's what the passage means. And if you have any doubt about it. Look at other places where it talks about the hand of God. Like First Samuel 5.11. In First Samuel 5:11 we read about the Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant and they've taken it into their city. It ain't going too well for them. they're all dying and they figure out they got to get rid of the ark and they gather together in verse 11 and they say it says, they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines. And they said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place so that it won't kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. Now, that's not the Bible writing writer saying that God descended from some planet where he supposedly lives. We'll get to that in a minute. And took his hand and just squashed it on that city. It's talking about the work of God. And I've given other references to that as well that are, that are in the lesson. Second Chronicles 30 verse 12 is another good one as well. And the lesson that we're not handing out by, by written lesson right now, we're going through a trial period where we try and do it by internet. If you're not on that email list and you want these written lessons, all you have to do is email and ask for them. But th- this, this, is, this is what the hands of God are. Now, this, as I said, is not just isolated with God. See, God is a physical flesh and bones creature who lives in a physical flesh and blood planet. Joseph Smith says he had a revelation. He's looking out at the nighttime stars, which, by the way, we've learned is basically the Milky Way galaxy. We know a lot more now than we did then. But he sees some distant star and it's revealed to him that God's on a planet near that star, Kolob. And so the idea is, is that the flesh and blood God lives on the flesh and blood star planet. And then creation in the Mormon sense is one where God's got these children who are also gods. See, because God lives there with his wife. They're having chill offspring. And the offspring are spiritual offspring, who are going to take on flesh and blood, but they need a planet to go do it on. So they find the planet Earth, and decide that can be organized and structured. And so, from Kolob, Earth comes and gets organized and structured. Earth and creation doesn't is not made out of nothing. God doesn't exist outside of creation. Creation is all there is. The universe is all there is. There's nothing beyond it. And that's very different than the Christian doctrine. The Christian doctrine is simple. And it's in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not just the earth. God in Christian doctrine and Jewish doctrine exists outside of ...of this universe. There's a big theological word for it called transcendence. God exists outside of this universe. And the universe is his creation. Now God comes into the universe and works within the universe. And the spirit of God can move on the faces of the deep. And Jesus can be God incarnate. But God himself exists far beyond the particulars of the universe. And that's because God's not a flesh and blood God. He's a spirit. So you look at passages like Revelation 21.1, where it says there's going to come a time where the old earth and the old heavens will be rolled back. And they'll be peeled away and a new heaven and a new earth will be here. And that's very different than the Mormon doctrine. That no, 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 at the end of time what's going to happen, under one theory at least, is the earth is going to move from its orbit around the sun and get closer to Kolob where God is. And then the events of Matthew 24 will happen. And, and 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 there's there's just a huge difference between those two and if the Book of Mormons correct and the Mormon doctrine is correct, there shouldn't be any difference. This idea, Mormon idea of God existing as part of what we would call creation as opposed to removed from, it would be in the Bible as well, but it's not. Humanity. who are we? The book of Mormon says, we will go down for there's a place there. We'll take of these materials and we're going to make an earth where we may dwell. These are the children of God, the soul children of God. They're spirits. They're not bodies yet. And so they decide to fashion earth so that they can be born here as a human and take on flesh. So humanity pre-exists birth. You and I existed before we were born, according to the Mormons, as uh, 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 creatures, as uh, children of God, soul children. Which also means you and I are gods, according to Mormon doctrine. So Mormon doctrine here for humanity has two things that are very distinct from biblical teaching. One is that we pre-existed our creation. And the second is that we uh, uh, are gods. And that's just not what's in the Bible. You know, I mean, here's Doctrine and Covenant says, Then the Lord said, let's go down. And they went down at the beginning, and they, that is the gods, organized and formed the heavens and the earth. They got us all formed and got the planet and the solar system and the moon where it needed to be and, and formed the earth the way it needed to be formed so that the gods could live here. Right amount of oxygen, right amount of this, right amount of that. Then the gods could get born here and take on flesh and blood. This is very different than the Bible. that says the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Man didn't pre-exist. God didn't incarnate man. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. He wasn't a living creature before that, soul or otherwise. If you want to read about an incarnation, go to Luke chapter 2 and read about when the divine is incarnated. Or go to Philippians 2 where Paul talks about the incarnation and talks about Jesus and says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a man. That's very different. And Paul's talking about Jesus there. He doesn't say... Hey, remember when all of us existed in the form of God but didn't regard equality and we emptied ourselves and took the form of a man. No, because we didn't. The biblical doctrine is is that God did something unique in Jesus when he incarnated as a human. That's not something that's common that we all did. You can see it, Luke one thirty five, the Philippians two passage, Zechariah twelve, over and over and over. Human beings, we're, we we didn't pre exist as souls. Now the 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 Mormons may counter and say, but wait, Jeremiah says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations, and that's fine. I guess in one sense the Mormons could say that means what they think it says, but it doesn't have to mean that. And the thing about it is is you need to read Scripture consistent with itself. And when so many Scriptures say we don't pre-exist, that's not the fair reading of this. This is talking about God's foreknowledge. If you're a builder, Larry Chalette, and you're building a home, you might look at the blueprints and you'll have a real good idea of what that home's going to look like. That doesn't mean the home pre-existing, you building it. Not a perfect analogy, but it helps. The fact that God knows something before it happens doesn't mean that it's already real. God knows what the next word's going to be on my lips, but it doesn't mean I've already said it. God knows what I'm going to do in this life and what he's formed me to do and what he's called me to do. But that doesn't mean I existed beforehand. So I have have some real problems with that. The Lord said, let's go down. And they were gods. No, we're not gods. I mean, you got blasphemed if you called yourself a god at the time of Jesus. You remember the passage in Mark 2? Where Jesus heals someone and in Helium he says your sins are forgiven. And the people around him said only God can forgive sins. So they pick up rocks to stone Jesus. Well if we're all gods we're all in the business of forgiving sins in their mentality. And Jesus certainly could have said hey don't stone me you're a god too. But he doesn't. Jesus could forgive sins because Jesus is God. We're not gods. We're not in the business. We can't forgive sins. That is an entirely separate picture from what people are in the Bible. Now there is one passage that I can find in all of the Bible that the Mormons may try to lean on. But even that passage, if you understand it, flies in the face of what they say. If you take one verse out of context, out of Psalm 86.6, it says, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. And if you just take that passage out, which may be what influenced Joseph Smith. Okay. But not if you're reading the passage. Certainly not if you're reading it in Hebrew. The reference there to God's Elohim is a reference to the rulers. Okay, we're running low on time. Psalm 86 This is so important that we look at it in context. It is short. And it is (laughs) miscited. Isn't that great? Okay. Well, I know the psalm, even if I don't have the number right. Let me tell you what the psalm says. The psalm is talking, by the way, I believe I wrote a, uh, devotional on it in your devotional book if you're reading along this year. The Psalm says and is addressing men who sat in seats as judges. They were God's representatives judging Israel. It's as, it's the equivalent of our courtroom today. And they were judging wrongly. And so God addresses them. And he says, hey, you may think you're gods, you're, you're, you're my appointed judges, Elohims. You may think that you're my designated sons to sit here in judgment over your brothers and sisters. But I remind you, you're a human being. You're not a god. I remind you, you're a human being and I expect you to judge right and to judge justly. And if you don't, I'm going to hold you to account. That's what it says in context. The context is very important. Now as for Satan, the Mormon doctrine is that Satan and the Mormon teaching is that Satan is just another brother of Jesus like you and me. And the reason Satan is condemned not to get a body and he's just a spirit in this world, he never got to be incarnated is because he jostled and fought Jesus for the right To organize and to be Jesus and to do the things that Jesus was going to do on this earth. Satan just wanted to be the one to be Jesus. Satan came before God saying, behold, here I am. Send me. I'll be your son. I'll redeem mankind that not one soul will be lost. Surely I'll do it. Give me the honor. God said, no, no, no. I picked Jesus to do that. And so Satan rebels against God. And as a result, Satan and his angels don't get to get born like we are. They don't get the flesh and blood benefit we do. Now, Scripture teaches that Satan's an angel. War arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. But the Greek word for angels, angelos in the Greek, doesn't mean God. It doesn't, and it doesn't. It's a messenger. An angelos is a messenger. It has a secular meaning as well. If I send something FedEx, FedEx back in New Testament age could have been called Angelax Because it's just a messenger. So the Michael comes down with the message to, to Mary and, and to her cousin Elizabeth. Hey, you're going to have a son. Or Gabriel. Gabriel, sorry. Michael's the one warring. Angels are messengers. Not gods. And it doesn't take more than a few years of Greek to figure that out. That's just the way it is. Jesus is the son of God. Angels aren't gods. They serve God. They minister for God. They're God's messengers. There's what God sends out. But they're not God's. So we've got that difference there. Jesus is the creator of angels. He's the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that he was born. That means he's, he's preeminent. He's first. He's the first. Jesus is the first in line. The highest. The supreme. And if you read the entire passage down to Colossians 1.18, you see that. But Jesus is the image Of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the the preeminent, because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Jesus is responsible for the creation of angels. He's not an angel. He's responsible for the dominions and rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is not just our older brother in the sense that we're all the same otherwise. I don't have time, I'm out of time, and we need to get to the points for home. But I'll tell you, conversion, in the Mormon faith, it's a universalism. Everyone's going to be saved. It's just a question of how close is the planet you get to live on to Kolob. And some are going to be in outer darkness. They're way far out in the solar system. I mean, in the the galaxy. Um, But the Bible... Works is not what gets you closest to God. It's belief in the Son of God. He gave His only Son, not one of several, not one of billions, His only Son that whoever believes in Him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Whoever doesn't believe is condemned already because he hadn't believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so these are just vastly different and those inconsistencies I can't live with. And I'd love to tell you how they came about because there is a huge logical inconsistency in Mormonism for me there and I've just blown it time-wise. And and I'm sorry. Um, so, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. So... Read the lesson. Get online. Good motivation. Get online. Read the lesson. Especially if you're watching this and you're, you're either a Mormon or you're tempted by the Mormon faith. Please read the lesson at the end where I talk about the, the inconsistency of saying Christianity had a period of apostasy that changed its original doctrines when the Mormon church itself finds itself constantly changing its original doctrines from Joseph Smith, whether those that treat African Americans as, as, as second-class citizens, if even that, uh, those that deal with women and how they deal with women, those that deal with marriage. There are countless places where the Mormon church, the whole view on Native Americans actually being genetic Jews, there's a whole area where that church has had to shift things, and yet the church says that the reason Christianity is messed up is because it changed from its original Bible. There's a real inconsistency in that message. Here are your points for home. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is God, I'm not. And I'm not going to worship you and you better not worship me. Because you will be miserably, miserably disappointed if you do. Worship yourself or me. I'm not, or I'm astonished, Paul said, that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of God and turning to a different gospel. There's not that there's another one. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, I'm going to cling to the gospel as it was revealed by Jesus and His apostles in the Holy Scriptures. And I'm not going to let any new revelation that a teenager had A couple hundred years ago, shake me in that. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. The gospel is Jesus Christ died for my sins to rescue me from eternal damnation. That's the gospel. I'm not already just one of God's children saved. There is a deliberate point in history where something happened. And in that death, I am saved and I'll stand. I'm excited to be back with you guys this year. Let me bless you in the name of Jesus. And I'm sorry I went so long. Father, I do pray your blessings on my friends here and those who may listen to this message. Father, draw us to truth. Even if it means we have to climb over obstacles of our upbringing, obstacles of our heart, obstacles of our family. Whatever obstacles stand between us and you, Father, give us the strength, the wisdom, the fortitude, and the drive to cross those obstacles and land squarely in your will for our lives and in your truth. I pray this for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.